Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to Season 2 of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project by students and alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy. An awesome organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. As usual, we'll start things off with a discussion of our biggest drug news from the last week, a couple of quick headlines, and a forecast for the week ahead. Then it's time for the second installment of March's Drug of the Month, where I talk about the science of fencyclidine, also known as PCP. Then we'll be talking about this year's marijuana ballot initiatives with Mason Tavert, Communications Director for the Marijuana Policy Project. And of course, we'll wrap it all up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs is a lot of fun, it doesn't matter if you're not then turning that knowledge into action. So thanks for joining us for episode 35 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. Now it's time for the weekly news forecast, where we bring you some of the biggest drug news stories from the last week and give you a heads up about some exciting things that are coming up. So, Rochelle, do you want to start us off with our first story? So for our many of our regular listeners, the school-to-prison pipeline is probably a familiar concept. But in Mexico, the war on drugs is now interfering with students' education in an equally destructive but almost more direct manner. So in the past month, schools in the Mexican resort city of Acapulco, particularly, have been forced to cancel classes as a security measure and also as a means of pressuring the federal government into providing those schools with armed guards from the military in response to threats and extortion from drug cartels. So this is not a this is um, absolutely a new thing, even though, you know, the war on drugs has been going on for many years now. Um, In one instance, about two weeks ago. Two armed men in a car without a license plate drove up to a school and demanded to see the principal. This happened on the same day that the school received an extortion call um, by people claiming to be members of a local cartel, um, demanding that the school pay up or else the cartel would come after them, you know, without any real specifics about what that might mean. Um, Classes were canceled that entire week and did not resume until the government provided three armed soldiers to guard the schoolhouse, like heavily armed um, and equipped soldiers. So in some cases, classes have been canceled for months, forcing the government to respond. So teachers, unions and administrators have kind of been using this class canceling tactic as uh, a protest against the government not really doing anything to protect their people. Yeah, so this story is so crazy. I mean, I remember seeing the headline originally and seeing, uh, you know, schools are forced to militarize themselves. And at first, my assumption was going to be like, okay, are they really being forced to or is this an overreaction to some sort of incident, just like how in the United States, we often have all these calls for arming police officers after some school shooting. But this is, in my view, after reading about it is much more, it it makes more sense as a response, just because this is not you know, random one-off events, but an organized criminal organization who is trying to intimidate them and obviously will be coming back. And it, it seems like much more of a real security threat than what we what we face here. here. Right, and it honestly seems like a much more legitimate use of armed, 
you know, armed guards mm-hmm. or armed soldiers in a school setting. Uh, these mm-hmm. are not soldiers who are shaking down students on their way to class, which is the more common scenario that we think of here in the United States when we think of, you know, mm-hmm. armed officers or police officers, quote unquote, guarding schools. They're really guarding mm-hmm. s- students from the other students. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's really like students and administrators have been threatened by local violent organizations. So um, kind of as an illustration of how widespread this problem has been in the Acapulco region. Um, so in November, 17 schools uh, in that area were forced to end their fall semester early um, because cartels were reportedly demanding a cut of teachers Christmas bonuses. <laughs> so because they knew wow. the teachers were going to get more money at the mm-hmm. end of the year, um, they were making more forceful threats. And then two months later, 29 schools uh, shuttered in response to extortion threats from gangs, according to the local uh, teachers union. So mm-hmm. this is becoming kind of a widespread problem. And one of the union leaders speculated that, you know, even though other businesses are often extorted by local cartels, um, schools seem to be an easy target for cartels because they know that teachers get uh, regular salaries as opposed Mm -hmm. to staff Mm -hmm. who might be working at nightclubs or street markets who have uh, less regular income flow. Yeah, and this story is just so scary, too. Just, um, I mean, right now it sounds like as far as their interactions with schools have been, it's mostly threats so far, but I wouldn't honestly be surprised if they end up following up very violently, even to students, if these uh, extortion threats aren't uh, you know, yielded to by the school, just because in the past these cartels have done things like kidnap large groups of students who are organizing against the war on drugs. Uh, there was that case of over 40 students going missing a couple of years ago. And um, if it's the same sorts of organizations, I wouldn't be surprised, unfortunately, if they, if they follow through with it. Absolutely. Um, this is a very real threat, and we I don't actually know how most of these schools are dealing with it other than canceling classes in response. Uh, one last thought that I thought was really interesting is that a local principal uh, said that many schools prefer to have armed army um, and Marines from the federal you know, military guarding them because they assume that they're cleaner and less corrupt than local police. Oh, wow. So mm-hmm. that kind of shows the extent to which, you know, this is a widespread problem throughout, uh, you know, many different different uh, aspects of society in, in, in Acapulco right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately for our next story, we've got another sad one, but this is uh, at least luckily more on sad on the legal side of things rather than uh, any, any extreme violence. Uh, but this past Thursday, California state legislature passed a package of six bills that are aimed at restricting restricting tobacco even further than the state already does. So this includes things from raising the purchase age from 18 to 21, increasing fees for retailers and distributors, eliminating the few exemptions to indoor smoking bans that are still on the books, and regulating electronic cigarettes the same as normal tobacco cigarettes, among many other measures. Uh, So while these bills rode to victory on a wave of anti-tobacco sentiment among legislators, many have also criticized the package for going too far, with the LA Times even publishing an editorial saying that the new laws would trample on smokers' rights. They even said, yes, smokers do have rights in the editorial there, and also that it would muddy the state's reputation for having smart regulation. Uh, So my first glance at this was just that increasing the age from 18 uh, up to 21 is bad for a number of obvious reasons that we've talked about in the previous discussions we've had on lowering the drinking age from 21 to 18. You know, things like uh, 
you can get married or join the military at 18 but not consume this drug. Uh, but the crazy thing with this bill, too, is that it actually includes an exemption for 18 to 21 year olds who are serving in the military. And so if you're in the military and you're 18 or 19, you can still buy cigarettes, but ones who aren't can't. Uh, which just seems like a terribly stupid and inconsistent carve-out in order, I guess, to head off that sort of argument, but it really just doesn't make any sense because they have the same lungs. So I think this is an interesting discussion because I don't know that I would, without having seen the details of this, I wouldn't across the board mm-hmm. say this is, oh, terrible you know, regulation. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. this does restrict you know certain people's rights um, further than they already have been. Um, but this is a case of, I mean, we're not prohibiting cigarettes altogether. It's, um, you know, what some people would consider just stricter regulation. Um, and, you know, as we know, California already has the second lowest rate smoking rate in the nation at only 12 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so while, you know, you might argue and some people have that that's evidence that their current regulations are working and don't need change. It could be that they see their current regulations working um, and want to go further in that direction in order to further decrease mm-hmm. that rate. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't I, and I, I'm not saying I'm not in support of this package package necessarily, uh, since I don't really know the details of it as well as you do. But I do think that mm-hmm. smart regulation does work, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we've seen with how um, the overall use of tobacco has decreased so much in the past few years. Um, then I'm not mm-hmm. ready to say that this is like a failure for sensible policy overall. Yeah. And, and there are certainly some things in the bills that I think could make sense or at least are, you know, pretty, pretty technical issues like the what the fees are set up for distributors. Maybe they were too low before and it makes sense to have them higher. Um, but as far as the thing that really gets me the most um, is the regulating e-cigarettes the same as tobacco cigarettes, just because it's so... Yeah, and so they're going to be grouping it in pretty much defining it the same way so that all of the same rules apply to e-cigarettes as tobacco. So including things like indoor smoking bans and regulations on purchase ages and a lot of different regulatory hoops that the companies have to jump through. And since these can also be kind of smoking cessation devices and you don't necessarily want to for many people because there are a lot of people use it as basically an exit drug from tobacco, which is much more harmful because you're actually smoking and inhaling all of those carcinogens instead of just the nicotine by itself. But they would essentially tax them. I mean, you know, tobacco products have all of these, you know, sin taxes on them with the intent of making them very expensive. Um, But those same sorts of sin taxes aren't used on things like nicotine gum, for example, uh, because it's seen as a smoking cessation device. Um, And so this is lumping in e-cigarettes with tobacco rather than smoking cessation, which will make it much more expensive. And it might mean more people end up continue smoking tobacco instead of switching to vaping. And that's kind of a harm reduction. bad idea as far as harm reduction goes yeah i definitely agree that uh e-cigarettes should not be treated the same as traditional you know tobacco smoking uh especially because a lot of the concerns with uh indoor tobacco use which is the close quarters in which um non-smokers can be inhaling secondhand smoke don't even apply Mm -hmm. to Mm e-cigarettes um and you're obviously right that the, the carve out exception for 18 to 21 year olds in the military is clearly just Uh, appeasing opponents, as you said. Mm -hmm. So moving on to our next story, and this one is actually 
uh, relevant to salmon's salmon's <laughs> <laughs> is relevant to Sam's current home state of Massachusetts. So inmates at um, the Hampshire County Jail, which is a county in Massachusetts, um, are now starting to receive intensive, more intensive treatment and support in the months leading up to their release um, in order to help them stay clean and avoid overdosing uh, on substances that they may have been addicted to once they are on the outside. So in December, the Sheriff's Department started holding these monthly substance abuse aftercare workshops for inmates who are going to be released within 30 to 60 days. So in addition to the aftercare workshops, inmates can also sign up to receive two doses of Narcan to take them uh, take, take with them once they're released. So according to the director of a local needle exchange program that's working with the county jail, uh, this was an important piece to the initiative because as former drug users, the men in the workshop were 100 times more likely to overdose than the general population upon release because their tolerance would have diminished over time while their expectations of how much drugs they could handle probably had not, so that they were at a much higher risk. But in addition to, you know, the Narcan being important for themselves, this is also a tool that they can use potentially to save other people's lives. Because um, as, you know, current drug users or drug users who are trying to get out of it, but who may know other uh, drug consumers, they're 10 times more likely to witness an overdose firsthand than a first responder is like someone like an EMT or police officer who responds to an overdose call. So having mm -hmm. Narcan on them uh, means possibly saving someone else um, who also has not been able to recover from their abuse or addiction. Yeah, this is incredible. And I'm just so happy to see uh, one of the counties in Massachusetts leading the country on this sort of thing. Because at first, when you hear jail substance abuse uh, education, I usually think that it's going to be much more punitive and much more trying to scare people. Um, but it's so fantastic that they're actually giving much more intensive aftercare workshops and especially that they're giving the Narcan out just because that's been something really popular here in Mass. I think, I don't know the numbers, but a very large number of uh, police departments now carry it, if not all of them. And uh, it is trying to be super available. I even took a class here that was totally free and they even give you Narcan at the end of it. And um, so it's good to see that these prisoners or ex-prisoners will be receiving Narcan both to save their own lives and people around them. Yeah, and I feel like we say this all the time on the show, but this just demonstrates how much progress has been made in the harm reduction realm uh, mm -hmm. since we started our podcast less than a year ago. Um, because I, because you know, the conversation in the past has been has been a lot more stigmatizing of Narcan mm -hmm. and its potential as an overdose. Um, Kind of encourager and that people right. would Not think that oh if they have a right but they were like mm -hmm. skeptical of it as like a, an overdose like i can't think of the word right now but like to reverse an overdose reversal drug right mm -hmm. and they thought that it might encourage people to use more because they now have this uh antidote to potential mm -hmm. death um and not only have we started seeing it being distributed to law enforcement officers and being available um, over the counter in many pharmacies or an increasing number of pharmacies. Uh, but now they're being uh, issued to formerly incarcerated people, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this combined with all of the movement on needle exchanges and even uh, the possible all the pushes for safe injection sites now, too, uh, across the U.S. It is really, really incredible of how far this has moved in just the past year. 
And so for our next story this week, uh, there's been this Washington Post story going around about how there's this company in Kentucky that lets parents hire uh, drug-sniffing dogs to go through their children's bedrooms in search for drugs. Uh, so it's called Last Chance Canine Service, and it's run by this guy named Michael Davis, and it works like this. So parents pay a flat fee of $99, and Davis will bring over a canine and search their house for drugs. Uh, this can be done while the child is at school or while they're home. It's up to the parent. And there was quotes by some parents in there saying that they didn't want their kids to know and others saying that they're taking basically the scared straight approach and wanting them to be terrified by this dog that's in their house. And um, But then if, uh, if Davis finds anything, he either lets the parents destroy it or if they don't want to, he will take it and drop it off at the local police station. And um, But there isn't any... Uh, you know, turning in the child to to the police, just the drugs. And so my, my first reaction to this was that this is horrible and a violation of kids' privacy and that the parents would be harming their kids much more than helping them. But then in the story, it did say that the most common drug that he finds is actually heroin. And that made me kind of second-guess some of my initial reactions, which I also want to talk about here. But So heroin is super common in what they call the Kentuckiana region, uh, which is between, or I guess Kentuckiana, because it would be uh, the region between Kentucky and Indiana. And um, that's where all of this, uh, these operations are. And I don't know if that was... I'm curious about some of my own like gut reactions here of how much it is just kind of the stigma associated with heroin still and how much of it is kind of a reasonable, you know, wanting to look out for, for kids to, to not get addicted. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, I, I guess I agree with the implication of what you're saying that it's better that, um, parents scare straight their kids and find these drugs rather than have to find out, that their kids are using these substances um, when they overdose and have to be hospitalized or, or worse. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think that if you're already suspecting your child of some sort of drug use or substance abuse or you know related issue that would make you hire this man, um, there are probably more <laughs> rational, loving approaches to mm-hmm. helping save your kid's life than... Uh, you know, paying this person to, especially, especially the, like the, the parents who are doing this while their kids are in school. That is just incredibly upsetting to me. Cause it's like bad enough when you're a teenager and your parents are like rifling through your journal or trying to figure out who you like, you know, uh, mm-hmm. let alone sending in a dog into your bedroom, uh, to sniff through all your stuff. And what happens if this guy is hired and the dog doesn't find anything? Do the parents get a discount? Do they get like, <laughs> do they ever tell their kids like that they made a big mistake and they're sorry that they invaded their privacy and assumed all these horrible things about them? Like what mm-hmm. is this person's, um, you know, success rate? It, uh, I, yeah. That's something that I was really curious about and he, they, they didn't mention it in there. Um, and I was, yeah, very curious about what the numbers actually are, because you always hear all these stories, too. I mean, I I knew people when I was younger whose parents suspected them, but they very legitimately weren't using any sorts of drugs. But uh, if a parent gets too paranoid about that or seeing these stories in the news about other kids, it is natural for them to worry. But as you said, there's so many better ways to handle this. And I also do really hope that say this happens and a, and a parent thinks that their child is lying to them and does find these drugs. I also really hope that that is followed up with a caring and evidence-based conversation and not one where they're just trying to terrify the kid more uh, because that obviously is just going to harm the relationship and not actually make the kids stop using drugs. They'll probably just stop keeping them at their house. 
And so they would be, okay, my relationship with my parents is terrible. I'll go use it at my friend's house or something right. like that. Right. I just don't really see how this tactic could segue into a loving and open and honest discussion. Mm-hmm. If that, if, if the parents had in mind to do something like that, couldn't they have confronted their child prior to hiring this man and his dog? And I have yeah. nothing against dogs. I think the, the dogs are caught in the crossfire here. Like, <laughs> it's not really their fault. But hiring this... Dogs on both sides of the drug war. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that is a fair point. And, I mean, obviously people should st- start with that. Um, but I guess if, if parents think that their child is lying to them, which, I mean, is very, very possible if you have a 16-year-old that's using heroin or something, then they are still suspicious I don't know. I, I'm not a parent, so I can't really speak to it. But I, it, it's be, it's better. I'd rather ha, I'd rather catch my kids than have cops catch my kids. Too, and so I don't know. It's a tough one. Yeah, maybe something that we could have a more in-depth uh, roundtable discussion about sometime too. But then, uh, so that moves us on into our uh, quick hits. So, do you have a headline for us, Rochelle? Yeah, so for our first headline, um, the Ohio Attorney General uh, this morning, which is Saturday morning, rejected the Marijuana Policy Project's medical marijuana petition. Um, And according to a letter from the Attorney General's office, the summary of the initiative included in the petitions was not a, quote, fair and truthful, end quote, representation of the initiative. Uh, Luckily, in Ohio, you only need a thousand signatures to qualify for the ballot. So MPP now has until August to collect and submit a new petition for the ballot. All right. Also this week, FloridaPolitics.com came out with a list of winners and losers of the 2016 legislative session. And the Drug Policy Alliance was named as one of the winners for their excellent work pushing a civil asset forfeiture reform bill that was passed unanimously, in addition to the syringe exchange bill that also passed. So great work, DPA. Congratulations, DPA. <laughs> um, and then also this past week, over 240 NGOs have signed on to a letter calling for President Obama to fight for bolder reforms in global drug policy uh, during this un- upcoming ungas session in April, including by uh, urging a greater focus on the international human rights ramica- ramifications of gr- current drug policy. So this letter was signed by organizations including SSDP, MPP, the Drug Policy Alliance, the ACLU, and the International HIV-AIDS Alliance. And finally, ACWI, a women's rights organization in Mexico, is out with a new study that found over 53% of the 13,000 women in Mexican prisons are there for low-level drug offenses. They also found that there are over 400 children living with their mothers in these prisons. Wow. So that takes us to our weekly forecast. Um, And my forecast this week is related to that last quick hit that I gave you guys, um, where we talked about the 240 nonprofit organizations calling on President Obama to step up as a leader on drug policy reform during UNGAS. Um, So SSDP has actually started a petition on change.org that lets you add your voice to that movement. SSDP's goal is to collect 5,000 signatures and are currently just under 4,000 signatures for that petition. So we'll put a link up to the petition on our Facebook and website, and you can add your name to the list of drug policy advocates calling on President Obama to take his approach of emphasizing treatment and compassion over criminalization to the UN. And next, for the SSDP alumni in our audience, of which we know there are many, elections for the Alumni Association leadership are nearly here. So candidate videos are now online, and we'll be sure to post a link to those on our website. And the voting will begin Monday, March 14th, so tomorrow if you're listening to this the day it came out. 
And if you're a member of the Alumni Association, be sure to vote. And if you're an alumni who hasn't joined the association yet, please do because it's not too late. So you can learn more at ssdp.org alumni. We should note that this is kind of a self-serving forecast because Sam and I are both running for <laughs> leadership. Very true. But we are both uncontested, so we're not really campaigning. Oh, okay. Awesome. <laughs> Vote for us anyway if you are our friend and like us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings us to the end of our weekly news and forecast. As always, we have our eye um, and our finger on the pulse of everything happening in drug and drug policy. But um, there's almost so much going on that sometimes we miss things. So if there's any uh, drug policy news stories or developments that you'd like us to talk about, please feel free to hit us up on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. And for those in Dr. Narlock's class, um, the extra credit code word this week is sassafras. If you, our dear listener, um, are also a teacher who is teaching in this realm or are interested in giving your students extra credit for listening to our podcast, uh, please let us know and you can uh, get your own code word too. Now it's time for the drug of the month, where we give an overview and dive into the science, history, and current events for a different drug each month. For March 2016, that drug is fencyclidine, more commonly known as PCP. So let's get into it and start with the science of this commonly vilified drug. As I explained last week, fencyclidine's chemical formula is C17H25N. In chemical structure, PCP is in the aerocyclohexylamine class, and in pharmacology, it's considered a disassociative anesthetic. It's either sold as a powder or dissolved in a liquid such as ether, and is most often smoked but can also be injected, snorted, or taken orally. But no matter which method of administration is used, once in the body, PCP acts as an NMDA receptor agonist, meaning it inhibits the action of the NMDA receptor. This receptor plays a major role in the perception of pain as well as in learning, memory, and emotion. This is responsible for its anesthetic properties and is the same mechanism used by many other drugs such as ketamine, nitrous oxide, and methadone. It also influences the actions of the neurotransmitter dopamine, which causes the euphoria associated with its use. When PCP is snorted or smoked, the effects are felt within two to five minutes and last for four to six hours. When injected, the effects are felt even more quickly. Its biological half-life is 7 to 46 hours, meaning it can stay in your system for nearly two days after you use it. The effects of fencyclidine vary based on its dosage. At low levels, which when snorted is about a milligram or so, it'll simply produce a feeling of numbness and intoxication somewhat similar to larger doses of alcohol, making the user slur their speech and making it difficult to walk or balance. But it also produces a distorted sense of time and disassociation with your body. Depending on set and setting, this can make people feel euphoric, like they're floating in a cloud, but also anxious or depressed or even paranoid if they don't know what to expect or are scared of these effects, and it may, be cause, it may cause them to behave pretty strangely. Moderate doses of 5 to 10 milligrams intranasally will produce anesthesia, and higher doses can even lead to convulsions. Within this range are varying levels of disassociation, beginning with numbness and moving up into viewing yourself and the world differently, even losing a sense of self and getting a feeling of floating or being outside of your body. Some people enjoy this while others may get scared, and those with a history of aggressive behavior can even act out and get violent. A few cases of people with histories of violence doing terrible things while on PCP 
were heavily publicized and gave it its reputation. And we'll go into these more in depth next week with the history, but it's worth pointing out right now that those sort of instances are incredibly rare and not really characteristic of PCP's effects on the vast majority of people. Overdose is also possible, uh, but it's relatively rare, and most of the injuries and deaths associated with PCP are actually a result of poor decisions or body control while under the influence. So these are things like drownings while trying to swim or falling into the water, uh, leaping from high places that they thought they could uh, land more safely on, motor vehicle crashes if trying to operate a vehicle while on PCP, and sometimes even suicide due to those big effects of paranoia or possibly feelings of grandeur and being able to do something that they're not able to, like jumping off of a balcony. Fencyclidine can also cause acute amnesia, meaning that some users are unable to remember anything after its effects wear off. And PCP can also in cause intense hangover systems, such as nausea and numbness in the extremities. Fencyclidine has also been shown to be addictive to many people and is classified as a Schedule II drug in the United States. It does have some medical uses and was actually originally created as an anesthetic under the trade name Cernal back in the 1950s. But because of its adverse side effects like hallucinations and disorientation, its medical use on humans was discontinued and instead in favor of other safer drugs. And now it's only used uh, on animals, similar to how ketamine is only used as a animal tranquilizer. So all in all, PCP can be very dangerous when used frequently or in high doses, but it doesn't turn all users into homicidal maniacs or even cannibals like many people seem to think. So that's it for the science of fencyclidine, and next week Rochelle will be going over the history of this infamous drug. time for a roundtable discussion where we bring together some of the brightest minds in drug policy reform to talk about the biggest issues facing us today. For today's episode, we'll be discussing marijuana ballot initiatives for 2016 with Mason Tavert, the communications director of the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, thanks for being here, Mason. Thanks for having me. Uh, so to start off, for some of our guests who um, may not be as deep into the drug policy reform world, um, who are you, and how did you get here? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I am currently the, the Director of Communications for MPP, and so I work on all of our, of our work in Congress, as well as at the state level legislatures and on ballot initiatives. Uh, but I really got into this uh, through MPP right after I graduated from college back in 2004. I uh, finished school and was hired to work on some campaigns in Arizona where I'm from, uh, really just kind of making life miserable for a couple members of Congress who were voting against medical marijuana legislation. Uh, at the time it was the Hinchy Rohrabacher Amendment and was not even close to passage. And uh, what, what, do you, what do you mean by making their life miserable? It's like were you chasing them around, like shouting things at them? Uh, waving signs in their faces. Two of those three things. Okay. Uh, not yeah. chasing them around. Uh, well, no, not shouting. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really a, a you know a matter of educating voters about their belief that it was okay to criminalize sick and dying people for using medical marijuana. So lots of signs with things like "Do not vote for ruthless Rick Renzi" and "Trent Franks is heartless," uh, and uh, 
you know, really just having a presence wherever we could and, and making them answer questions about it whenever possible and that type of thing. And, and that was just, uh, you know, during the primary and then the general election in 2004 and that ended. And I uh, then returned back out east because I had been in school in Virginia, but uh, went back out and uh, at that time started forming the plan for SAFER with Steve Fox and Aaron Houston and um, shortly after that moved to Colorado in January 2005 to start an organization called SAFER uh, that was really designed to build public support for legalization in the state and things really just kind of snowballed from there. And it was called SAFER because it was built around this message that marijuana was a safer alternative to alcohol. That's correct, yeah. So the whole real plan surrounded the idea. The idea was that uh, rather than trying to just force people who think marijuana is dangerous to think it should be legal, we would actually address their concerns about it being too dangerous by making it known that marijuana is actually less harmful than alcohol, both to the people who use it and to those around them. And therefore, we would see more support. And that's exactly what's happened. Yeah, because arguably that was the the main message of the Colorado campaign of Amendment 64 back in 2012, which was obviously the first state to uh, to legalize or actually, I guess, Washington was. An no, hour Washington was an hour like later. Very close up to there. An hour later. Oh, OK. Oh, yes. Time zones. That's how they work. <laughs> Perfect. So Colorado was the first state. So congratulations. <laughs> and um, I guess we might as well then dive right into the 2016 campaign, uh, which is the the main topic of the discussion. So there's going to be you know five states that are, have always been expected to be the ones who are voting on legalization in November. Uh, those being California, Massachusetts, Nevada, Arizona, and Maine, uh, which we've talked a little bit about on previous episodes and would really love to dive into. But uh, I guess just is MPP involved in all of these and are all of these focused around uh, the safer messaging or are they a bit more individualized? This time? Um, well, MPP is uh, involved in all of them. Uh, I would say that, that California is, is one in which uh, we are playing a, a supporting role and part of a coalition. They all involve coalition efforts, but uh, California has a, its own uh, different centralized campaign and, and MPP along with the Drug Policy Alliance and the NAACP and others are, are uh, contributing significantly. But uh, w- with regard to uh, Nevada, that's another one where it's kind of a split role with uh, a lot of folks on the ground there. And MPP is really supporting and, and uh, drafted the initiative and, and got it onto the ballot. And now uh, we'll be working closely on, on that campaign. And then in Arizona, Maine, and Massachusetts, those are efforts that we're really kind of spearheading and, and organizing the coalition behind and, and basically in a kind of a similar situation to Colorado. And, and yeah, with regard to the messaging, um, you know, definitely in, in Maine and Massachusetts and Arizona, we've been very heavily focused on, on getting the message out that marijuana is less harmful than alcohol and, and trying to, you know, boost the percentage of the public that recognizes that fact, because we know that that will result in them being more, more open to passing a law that, that treats it that way. And, uh, in, in California and Nevada, uh, those are states that have really seen a lot of, of, uh, activity lately surrounding marijuana. Uh, so it's not as, as urgent of a matter there, but uh, that's certainly something that we try to get out everywhere we can. It's really interesting from just a kind of marketing point of view also that all of these campaigns are called the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol. 
And that's been the case both in Alaska in the past also and Colorado. Like, it's always the, right, the main, the... Uh, that's the case in... That's the case... Yeah. yeah, it's and uh, and Nevada is as a slight variation, but yeah, ultimately, I mean, you know, they are are as concisely conveying what the initiative does as possible. I mean, you know, we are talking about making a substance that people use to relax and uh, to to have fun and socialize, uh, to make it a legal product that will be regulated and taxed and have rules surrounding its use and where and when it can be used and who can use it and what the product needs to needs to go through in order to be made available it needs to be tested and labeled and packaged and the shortest way of explaining all of that is we're regulating marijuana like alcohol and actually before diving into the um to the 2016 campaign stuff i this is actually just something that's always kind of been in the back of my mind with this messaging, which I totally agree with because, I mean, scientifically, marijuana is safer than alcohol. But in a sense, it is also obviously safer than tobacco, uh, something else that's always been uh, regulated rather than prohibited. And we didn't even need to go through prohibition with that. And I've always been a little curious as to why you went with marijuana is safer than alcohol rather than marijuana is safer than tobacco. Um, was it more of concerns that, you know, you wanted it regulated more like alcohol or that tobacco was too demonized and you didn't want marijuana associated with that? Or what, what was the, the thought going in there? Uh, well, there's a few things. I mean, number one, just on the most obvious is that uh, the the legal drinking age is 21 and these initiatives are proposing making marijuana legal for people 21 and older, not 18 and older. So it would be, you know, but but in terms of focusing on talking about marijuana and alcohol versus tobacco, um, it's just a matter of primarily that marijuana is used for a lot of the same reasons that alcohol is used. Uh, it's used, uh, you know, as a social lubricant, it's something that people use after work to relax and while they're socializing, and uh, it's an intoxicating substance. Whereas that's not the case with tobacco, uh, so they generally are, are used. There's a little more of a similarity there, uh, but also, uh, you know, how many people do you know who drink, and how many people do you know who smoke cigarettes? Yeah, um, you know, I think it's safe point. to say that that alcohol is is a lot more acceptable in our society and. Uh, you know, we are suggesting that, it, you know, if we allow people to drink in order to have a good time, uh, there's no reason why we shouldn't allow them to use uh, a substance that's less harmful for the same exact reason. And yeah, uh, you know, we also, of course, certainly don't want to make people think about tobacco and smoking and cancer and all that type of stuff, even though, you know, there are no documented cases of lung cancer caused by smoking marijuana uh, compared to, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of, of cases involving tobacco every year. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly not. And I a, guess there would be a bigger argument for groups like Project Sam that are trying to cast marijuana as the next big tobacco that. If we were saying regulate marijuana like tobacco, that would probably not be the best framing on. Yeah, our there's, side. you know, I mean, just, you know, you see baseball stadiums named after beer companies, and you're not going to see that. And that's not to say that we want to necessarily see that with marijuana companies. It's just a matter of our, our our society fully embraces alcohol. Even people who don't use alcohol generally agree that it should be legal and it should be allowed for people to use responsibly, and uh, that's what we want to see with marijuana. Uh, 
that's a very good um, big picture perspective about what what's going on here. Um, and to get into the details now about some of these campaigns, and specifically what may be the elephant in the room, um, is the fact that for now it looks like the main initiative may not make it onto the ballot. Um, we talked in our news updates last week about um, how there were some problems with a notary who was involved with 17,000 petition signatures, I think. Um, uh, so what happened there and uh, sure. Yeah. What is, well, it's not really much to, of an elephant in the room. Go? It's just another case of of you know government officials really trying to make it difficult to change marijuana laws. I mean, we've got a situation in which uh, uh, the Secretary of State in Maine uh, did not count more than five thousand petitions that were full of more than twenty six thousand signatures, including uh, what we believe are at least seventeen thousand or more that were valid. Uh, they did not include them because they felt that the signature of the notary who signed them did not closely match the signature in the the state's database on file for that notary. If you look at them, you would laugh. Um, it'd be basically like comparing your signature on the back of your credit card to uh, your signature when you sign a check. Uh, obviously, it's not exactly the same every time, but uh, it, they're very clearly the same signature. Um, the notary, all, or excuse me, the Secretary of State also. Uh, well, did... so is that something we can see, like, or is that like confidential information because uh, well, there's the, the, still yeah, legal? There, that's all. That stuff's all public record. Uh-huh. Um, but... I mean, I think that that would be cool for our viewers to see. You know, I mean, like, we know that there have been cases of you know public officials putting up roadblocks for these initiatives in the past. Um, it'd be, you know, just interesting for us to be able to see. Because we do want to laugh. Yeah. Like, we want to know. I mean, but the thing is, is that you don't even need is. to. You don't even necessarily need to look at the signatures and see that they're the same to recognize that uh, the 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 measure should still be on the ballot. I mean, basically, the Secretary of State provided no even remote justification for thinking that they were different signatures. They didn't say they looked different uh, in any particular way. They didn't have any expert look at these. They have uh, really. They they went. And, and exceeded their authority, and there's nothing in the Constitution of, of the state of Maine or the, the governing statutes there that says that they need to confirm I, the identical nature of these signatures, and there's really no good reason for them to not even include these signatures in their count, let alone, you know, it's not that they checked them and saw that they were, you know, voters who weren't registered. I mean, these are, these are signatures that town clerks already went over and what's really crazy is that the same notaries whose signatures they say are are not matching those same notaries also collected signatures on petitions and signed as circulators in some cases and those were validated by the secretary of state so in other words the same person would sign a petition saying yes i collected these signatures and the secretary of state said that's their signature and then they went and signed the notarization form on a different petition and they said well that's not their signature and it's just it's really crazy oh, wow. so uh you know we're very confident so the, these are other non-marijuana ballot initiatives that are just receiving nowhere near as much scrutiny as the marijuana initiative uh, so it does no seem it's like the very, other ones too very I mean, clearly it, it, discrimination it really, it more so mm-hmm. um appears to surround uh, a particular individual who's had 
some some issues with the petitioning process in the past, but the fact remains that those are irrelevant to this. I mean, it's very clear that these are the signatures of registered Maine voters, that they were notarized properly. You know, they were signed off by a notary. They were signed off by the petitioner. They were signed off by the towns, who are the ones that look at all the signatures. And the Secretary of State got to it and said, well, we just are going to go ahead and assume that this is not his signature. And you can't do that when it comes to the constitutional right to put something on the ballot. Mm. And so, you know, we're, we're quite confident, uh, you know, the legal appeal is available. If you go to regulatemaine.org, you can uh, read the, the lawsuit that we filed today. And uh, it it's, makes a pretty compelling case. Awesome. We'll put that on our website so that our, our listeners can uh, check it out. So, Sam, did you have questions about any other ballot initiatives? Well, I was also curious of um, just so you're working on these these four that MPP is taking taking the lead on and then obviously involved with many other stakeholders in the big California campaign. So, I mean, say focusing on the the other three states um, and we can also include Maine in there because hopefully it'll it'll get back on the ballot. But Nevada and Arizona and Massachusetts, um, I was wondering if you could start off by just kind of giving a little bit of an overview in terms of what these initiatives would actually do. Are pretty much because MPP was in, involved in, say, you know, Colorado and Alaska. Um, are they pretty much the same sort of regulatory systems that we're seeing in those states? Are there any any major differences that you'd see in, in these states in terms of, say, lessons learned from Colorado or um, just things that are kind of tailored towards the local the, environment, you know, kind of quirks of yeah. each state? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yeah. to you know, ninety nine point nine percent of people who would have any questions about these initiatives, they're generally the same. I mean, we're talking about having, you know, possession of a limited amount of marijuana being legal for adults 21 and older, uh, the ability to, to grow limited amounts of marijuana in your own home, the ability to possess what you grow, uh, having a, a agency established that will regulate uh, marijuana and will have rules relating to things like testing and packaging and labeling. Uh, there will be classes of licenses for cultivation, uh, sales, uh, retail stores, um, testing facilities, product manufacturers, uh, you know, the ability of localities to, to control whether or not they have businesses and to uh, be able to have their own regulations on those businesses. Uh, these are going to be basically the same across the board for all of these, uh, but there are going to be differences based on you know, the, the backgrounds of the states uh, as well as on the natures of the initiatives. Uh, so for example, um, you know, some states, yeah, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of the new ones, but like Colorado had a Department of Revenue with a medical marijuana enforcement division and a liquor enforcement division and so on. And so it makes sense that we would have the Department of Revenue be the governing you know, regulatory agency. Um, well, Washington mm -hmm. didn't have a Department of Revenue that was overseen. They had a, a state liquor control board. So, you know, you couldn't just do it the same way in those two states. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. you know, it. And I know here in Mass, there's kind of a weird quirk that you're not allowed to make changes to a ballot initiative that passed until six years later, or like three election cycles. Um, and, and so they weren't able to combine the recreational uh, administration with 
the medical marijuana program, even though they're, you know, very similar in many ways, but I had to keep them running in parallel just because they weren't legally allowed to make those changes. Yeah. And there's going, so there's going to be some unique things and, and, you know, there's also, uh, you, you got to take into account that for example, in, you know, Arizona, you've got an existing medical marijuana system that, you know, has hundreds of businesses already operating, uh, all over the state. Uh, so that's a different situation than say in, uh, you know, California or Nevada where there aren't, uh, you know, there haven't been businesses operating in a regulated fashion for, you know, the last few years, uh, you know, Nevada and Massachusetts are just now rolling out their systems and, and getting businesses started. Uh, California obviously just passed its regulations. And so those aren't even really entirely implemented. So, you know, it's a different situation compared to say Arizona where these businesses are all fully licensed and regulated and up and running. So that gets taken into account as well. Um, I will say maybe one unique thing, um, in particular that comes to mind is in Nevada, there's a, a specific class of license for distribution, uh, which is not, uh, which is, which is somewhat unique. Um, and that's really just, so that would be the people who carry the product. It'd be like with alcohol, you know, alcohol, you've got a, 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 a multi tiered system. You can't, you know, people aren't producing and distributing. They are either doing one or the other. Uh, so, you know, based on the the history in Nevada and how things are established there with alcohol, uh, it really it seemed that that creating a system that allowed for distributorships uh, made sense. Uh, of course, there's also you know the hope that we'll see you know a lot of people who are more supportive because they know that this is going to be done by people who know what they're doing. Uh, so that, for example, allowing some of the folks who are involved in distributing alcohol being involved in it, uh, that certainly plays a role because you've got these questions over, well, are we going to know that people are doing this properly? And well, these people have really spent the last several decades dealing with these things, you know, chain of custody issues and that type of stuff to make sure that it's, uh, you know, going smoothly so that was included there uh and then of course you know there's just uh always going to be minor differences in terms of where we view public support um in maine you know uh, the uh, amount of marijuana that one can can possess or grow is going to be uh, slightly higher than in some of the other states um so you know but ultimately it's they're generally similar Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of lessons learned since Colorado, too, right? Like now a lot of these um, initiatives and new laws coming up also include like mandatory testing because quality testing, because we learned that that was important in Colorado and like limitations on packaging and labeling and edibles um, or for edibles specifically, um, you know, because those were things that we didn't know were going to be issues at the time that we Mm -hmm. passed legalization for the first time in Colorado. So one of those other issues that we're grappling with now is um, the issue of social use or public, you know, not public consumption because that sounds bad. But like, what are we where where are people going to go? use? Come on, you're an attorney. It's not public consumption because by (laughs) definition, it's not public consumption. Um, I, I mean, you know, there's a difference between standing, not a licensed attorney. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a difference between someone with, a law, degree, like with a law degree. Yeah. Uh, there's a difference between standing on the street in front of a bar drinking a beer and being inside the bar drinking 
a beer. Right, right. One is drinking in public. There's open container laws. It's illegal. The other is drinking in a private, private venue that is yeah. open to the public, and, mm-hmm. and there's a very big difference. And mm-hmm. no, but that is a is a is a good example of of an issue that. Uh, uh, has come up and that has been addressed in a lot of these initiatives. Um, it's even been addressed, you know, in Alaska, for example, uh, where they now have a class of license for retail stores that allow on-site consumption. Mm-hmm. So they and they really, were the first state to be able to do that, right? Uh, that is correct. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so you know, the other uh, initiatives do have uh, language in it in them that allow for this. So in Maine, it's, you know, specifically allows, uh, for licensed, uh, clubs, I believe. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately this is also not just one that's a matter of learning per se, but also, mm-hmm. uh, one that is, you know, based on where the state is and the evolution of thinking on the issue. I mean, you know, when amendment 64 was written, it was very intentionally written to ensure that these types of social use establishments would be allowed. It's not that we didn't think of it. It's that it was written to very much ensure that they would be possible. And uh, unfortunately we've run into a situation where that's being misinterpreted by localities who are, you know, banning this and and really uh, adopting a definition of open and public that is broader than than what is technically open and public at the state level. Right. So. And it's and it's really um, Denver that's been taking the lead on this as the largest city in the state. Um, they've taken an incredibly strict interpretation of what is allowed under Amendment 64. And that kind of like set a, a, a bad standard, it seems like. Or at least, you know, the place where most people would need to have somewhere like this to consume uh to consume marijuana if they were tourists from out of state or most people live in Denver and that's or a lot of people live in Denver and that's why it's a big issue when a big city like that um, takes such a bad stance. But yeah, but you know, now we we you know, there's some some uh, you know, more detailed language in some of these and then in some cases, you know, I I have to go back and look at each one, you know. I keep in mind that I'm I'm just the the communications person on that the <laughs> policy person i have a very limited role in drafting and and whatnot so you know i have to kind of look them up as i as i need to take them on but um, ultimately you know we always are are very careful to ensure that uh, this is going to be something that can happen and sometimes you know like when it comes to uh like colorado i mean there's a big difference between saying in the initiative that there must be certain types of venues where people can consume marijuana and saying that, you know, you know, just writing things in a way to ensure that, that those would be allowed without actually specifically authorizing them. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that is something that is one of the reasons that I was so bummed that out of all of the States that it it could have happened to that Maine is the one that uh, may not be on the ballot this year, just because it is the one that explicitly allows for a social use license in there. And really, And I think that was partly the product of that was brought on by kind of a merger of two different initiatives. Right. And one was a more grassroots and one was Uh, it was included in there. I I would say that that's one is people who claim that they people have been trying and failing for many years. People who (laughs) are just, you know, willing to acknowledge, you know, I mean. 
David Boyer has, you know, uh, mm-hmm. been living in Maine for years and has, you know, ran the initiative that legalized marijuana under Portland city ordinances. And you didn't hear people saying anything and ran the initiative that legalized marijuana under South Portland city ordinances and ran the campaign to legalize marijuana under Lewis and city ordinances and is doing it with all sorts of volunteers. The fact is that, uh, you know, MPP is an organization with a long history of passing initiatives and with a large network of people that are interested in supporting that type of work. So essentially you've, you've got a situation where because of the organization's success in actually legalizing marijuana, um, it's somehow considered to be less grassroots when it was simply more successful at being a grassroots organization. Um, but Regardless, both initiatives included social use provisions that allowed for licensed facilities that people could consume marijuana in. So that's not even a difference between the two. Uh, okay, that wasn't a product of, of it being a merger. That was in each of them independently and then just got included in the merger. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the merger it was really just moving forward with one of the initiatives, so yeah. So um, you made a good point earlier that um, your role in all of these campaigns is primarily as a communications director, since that's your job at MPP. Um, are there, so I'm interested to know, like, are there any particular like media stunts or media successes that you guys have had in any of these states that would be cool to talk about? Um, well, yeah, you know, there've been things going on uh, that are, you know, honestly, that they're a lot of the same types of things that we did in Colorado that we did in Alaska. Uh, you know, we put up a billboard uh, in in like in downtown Phoenix, uh, the the week leading up to the Phoenix Open, which is you know, the, what is known as uh, and and really marketed as the quote largest party on grass, uh, because it's a massive <laughs> gathering of people at a sporting event who drink beer, and it's sponsored by a beer company, uh, and so we had a billboard that. You know, had a couple. Uh, you know, man. Wait, what kind of sporting event is this for people who this don't is know? A, it's the it's a it's a golf tournament. Okay. Uh, the Phoenix Open. Um, so it's uh, you know attracts hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people on uh, over the course of, of just a few days, and um, you know we had a billboard that we put up that you know it had a a man and a woman lying you know on the grass just kind of hanging out and said you know if you call drinking beer and watching golf the greatest party on grass. Why can't adults have a safer party on grass? <laughs> Something of that nature. Um, uh, we've had lots of, of, of various stunts in, in Maine where we've really been active and, and been building support there over the last several years. Uh, you know, we had a billboard that was actually similar. We did it again in Arizona that, you know, it was kind of, uh, looked a little like a horror movie poster or like reefer madness of like a woman screaming and said, you know, marijuana, uh, less toxic, less addictive, less scary than alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we did those around Halloween. Um, we've, uh, got some stuff coming up in Massachusetts here in the coming week. So keep an eye out for that. Um, yeah. And, uh, Wait, you're not going to tell us what it is. Stay no. tuned. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, I thought we were going to no. get like a surprise. <laughs> that could be our kind of quasi-forecast here. Well, this, isn't, this isn't airing until Sunday. Yeah. It's well, going... You'll be able to talk about it all next week. Okay. Okay. Um, 
But uh, yeah, you know, uh, we're really going to be doing things uh, to get people talking about the initiatives and talking about the fact that marijuana is safe for the alcohol. You know, we've got uh, literature that really highlights uh, the relative safety of marijuana compared to alcohol. And, you know, we, we've really managed to find those the, the information that is effective at getting people to, to come around and support this stuff. And so these kinds of media stunts that you guys do, though, is like a thing you're known for, right? Like it's it's called earned media, which isn't a thing that I had ever heard of before I worked with you guys on the campaign, mm-hmm. um, Amendment 64 campaign. It, and it means it's earned media because you spend the money on like spend less money doing something that'll attract a lot of attention rather than spending money on like buying ad time right or ad Correct. space yeah so you know there's paid media which would be just you know used by time on the radio or you buy tv spots or you buy you know an ad in a newspaper and then there'd be earned media which you know doesn't necessarily entail any sort of paid advertising it could be that you just hold a news conference or you you know do something or other that that gets you know into the news and gets you the time on television or on the radio or or the space in the newspaper uh sometimes that entails doing a little bit of paid media so you know buying a single billboard or a couple billboards or a few bus ads or putting an ad on television for just a few days or a week um and it's a way of of you know really stretching things a little further All right, Mason, so we are coming up on time here, but before we wrap up, I did want to make sure that we touch on one other initiative that we haven't talked about yet, uh, just because the other ones are are all for adult use initiatives, like systems similar to what we've got in Colorado and Washington. Um, But there are still a lot of states that don't even have medical marijuana yet. Uh, So MPP recently has been announced, has announced that they are uh, leading a campaign out in Ohio uh, to get medical marijuana legalized in that state this November. So would you be able to be able to uh, just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, last year there was an effort to pass an initiative that would have made marijuana legal both for adult use and medical purposes. And it got a lot of attention because of the way in which it was written and, and you know, creating an oligopoly type system with some predetermined cultivation licenses in the in the system. Um, and, you know, this is going to be very different. I mean, we, you know, we we were not involved in that campaign, but we could see it was clear that there was strong public support for a medical marijuana law you know there's been polling that showed anywhere from 75 to 90 percent of voters support allowing medical marijuana for people who could benefit from it and so we've put forward an initiative that addresses uh, those issues that people did not like about the initiative last year uh, that includes an unlimited number of cultivation licenses uh, and that really creates a strong medical marijuana law that is based on the best practices that we've seen in other states and a lot of the lessons learned. So it would allow for you know, a, a robust system that covers all the people who could really benefit. Uh, and that would include you know, people suffering from conditions like cancer and MS and, and ALS and all those types of things, as well as PTSD and seizure-related disorders, epilepsy, and then, of course, uh, severe chronic pain. And, of course, you have the advantage of your, um, of, uh, you know, of 
proven to be effective messaging also, as opposed to the messaging that the campaign last year employed, which included <laughs> a mascot named Buddy, um, who Sam is a, a fearsome foe of. <laughs> so, so yeah, will the yeah, campaign they're... have any uh, have a mascot this year? Um, <laughs> and what will his name be? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I highly doubt there will be any sort of mascot. Um, you know, really, it's uh, it's going to be a matter of, of just getting on the ballot and then making sure voters understand the very simple facts about the initiative. Because when it comes to the subject matter, you know, we don't need to convince people of 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 the importance uh, or of the need for it. Uh, you know, like I said, you've got polls showing 90% of the voters think that it should be legal for seriously ill people to use medical marijuana there. Uh, we really just need to make sure it's well written and went to great lengths to, to do that. So it's a matter of getting the money needed to get on the ballot and then getting uh, people to hear about the details and to know that it's, uh, it's soundly written. Well, so hopefully in Ohio, second time's the charm. We, so this brings us to the end of our discussion, and we always wrap up our roundtables with a call to action, since educating people about marijuana drug and drug policy is pretty useless if we're not using that knowledge to also improve our communities and make the world a better place. So if you could have listeners do one thing right now, what would you ask them to do? Uh, start a conversation regarding marijuana with someone who they think might be on the fence about whether or not to make it legal, and to really just explain why they think it is important that we change marijuana laws and make sure that the person understands that we're talking about a substance that's less harmful than alcohol and you know really that's uh the most important thing is people talking to those closest to them about this and you know that's what's going to result in in those people becoming more comfortable with the idea so talk to your friends and family good advice call your moms and your (laughs) moms call your your moms yeah All right, well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today, Mason. Again, this has been Mason Tavert, Director of Communications for the Marijuana Policy Project. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to episode 35 of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and Sarah Merrigan is our engagement director. We'd also like to thank Mason Tavert of MPP once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more information about the show, including links to our guests and news stories and so much more. If you're listening to this on iTunes and like what you hear, please give us a rating and write a review. We've also got one more new request this week. We just joined a website called Patreon, which allows people to give small monthly contributions to creators whose content they like. If you enjoy this podcast, if you find it fun to listen to or educational, and want to help us continue our work and spread the word even further, please head over to patreon.com TWID and donate as little as $1 a month. We've even got some cool prizes on there for people who chip in a little bit more. So that's all for this week, and so please remember to stay sensible, and we'll see you for episode 36 next Sunday. Our outro song this time around is In the Back by Darlington.